2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let us read together the responses for uh, Lord's Day 33, which is on page 45 in the back of the blue. Thank you so much to our choir, and thank you also to our trumpeters for the evening, Jan and Jacqueline. Thanks so much. Second Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 10. This is, once again, God's holy word, our authority. In faith and in life, let us give our attention to its reading. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged." In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling." I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Lord's Day 33. Repentance and the dying away of the old man, the coming to life of the new. Question 88. Let us respond together. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? It is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. What is the coming to life of the new self? It is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to. What do we do that is good? Only that which arises out of true faith, conforms to God's law, and is done for His glory, and not that which is based on what we think is right or on established human tradition. We have begun to consider the issues of sanctification and the Christian life. We'll be looking at these things through the lens, of course, of the Ten Commandments in the next several weeks. 
Before we get to the commandments themselves, the Catechism pauses to consider true repentance. This is a wonderful reminder to us. Even the way that it is structured is a wonderful reminder to us that no matter what part of the Christian life which we are considering or discussing, there will always be the need to repent and to turn from our sin as we see each day that we cannot keep the law of God perfectly. Tonight, then, we seek to lay the groundwork from God's word of having a lifelong doctrine of repentance from sin. It's to be a lifelong process. And also a lifelong process of growth in what you might call gospel obedience. Gospel obedience, which is different than seeking to attain self-righteousness, but a gospel obedience as the last answer shows us that we are to live by faith and, and understand that Christ covers all of our imperfections and that we are to do things unto God's glory. That's gospel obedience. And these things are vital to what we talked about last week, which is true freedom in Christ. True freedom in Christ, which is different than the world's freedom. And that Jesus gives us a solid place to stand. He gives us the ability and the, and the power to say no to all of the wiles of the devil. The letter of 2 Corinthians is a great example of Paul's earnestness to see Christianity lived out. There is a sense in which you could say that passages like Romans 6 come to their practical fruition in these kinds of situations that Paul addresses in letters like 2 Corinthians. Paul writes with great zeal, showing God's people, that they must live in accordance with all of his commandments. There's a background story here in 2 Corinthians, just to fill us in a little bit. Paul had a complicated history with this church, which you tend to to see if you read the letters. There were many ebbs and flows, and we're not totally informed of every single situation uh, in the scriptures, but we know that there were a lot of problems We know here, particularly in regards to this passage, that there was a time that Paul went with great urgency to Corinth to address a particular situation. He went to appeal to all of the Christians there who had been led away from Paul's teachings and who had been influenced by all of these false teachers who had come into Corinth and were creating all of this upheaval in the church. So Paul went there with great haste. He tried to restore order. That's why Paul went, to appeal to them, saying, I'm the representative of Christ. I'm speaking with authority. But what he found was not the response and the reconciliation that he had expected. There were many who were still rejecting Paul's authority, who were not willing to listen to him. They did not submit to his rebuke. So this created a lot of pain for Paul. It's a painful situation. And he tells them in this letter that to reject him is to reject Christ because he's working on behalf of Jesus. He's working as his true representative. After this visit, Paul decided to write a letter to the the Christians in Corinth, a letter that we don't have in Scripture. It was a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians that, uh, that we don't have in our canon. But he appealed to them to repent and to turn back to the true gospel and to be reconciled to one another and to Paul himself. He did this to denounce all of these false teachers. 
These false teachers had said that Paul could not possibly be the apostle of Jesus Christ because of all of his sufferings. He was weak. He was often imprisoned. He was very poor. Therefore, he could not be a true apostle. This is, of course, ironic because this was, these are the exact things the kinds of people said about Jesus. He could not be the Messiah because he was crucified, because he was weak in the eyes of the world. Thus, throughout the letters of Corinthians, particularly 2 Corinthians, Paul continues to draw parallels between himself and Jesus. But Paul, of course, is overjoyed to hear that this letter produced repentance in the Corinthians. And that's what he's responding to in this passage here tonight. He's thankful to hear that they have, uh, that they have repented and that they have uh, re-examined their lives and they have given themselves to the gospel and to Paul. Titus reports all of this to Paul and that's why he is named as well. Paul is filled with thankfulness to God that restoration has taken place. This shows why this letter is illustrative of the Christian life and why it's important for us to consider when we're considering things like the Ten Commandments and true repentance and freedom in Christ. Because what we do in our lives matters. What happens after someone comes into the church is of great importance. And the discord that unrepentant sin creates is dangerous to the church. And Paul shows us this by the great zeal with which he addresses all of these things. This is why Paul's letter of rebuke hit the Corinthians so hard. This situation becomes for us a perfect example, an illustration of the Christian life. Why? Because the Corinthians were convinced that they were wrong. They were convinced of their sin, of their error, and it led to their repentance. This repentance was comforting to Paul, not because it is grief itself that saves us, but godly grief is a fruit of true faith. So Paul could see godly grief in the Corinthians and and be comforted in knowing that they are showing the fruits of true faith. There are two kinds of grief or sorrow that Paul talks about in this passage. There is worldly sorrow and there is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is evidence of what our catechism calls the dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. Worldly sorrow is that which remains trapped in death. It does not lead to repentance. Thus, our central idea tonight is this. Repentance is the result of godly sorrow, which realizes our need to run to Jesus Christ. It's a universal need for all of us, to run to Jesus Christ. While worldly sorrow remains blind to the need for repentance. That's, what, that's the problem with worldly sorrow. It never issues in, into true repentance. And the great mystery of our faith is that something like repentance, having sorrow and confessing our sins, something like that is a source of comfort, a great mystery of the Christian faith, but also something, a blessing on which to dwell. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to the comfort of the gospel. First then, let us consider these two kinds of grief which Paul talks about, godly and worldly. We see very clearly in verse 10 that the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is repentance. So how can that be? Why does godly sorrow produce repentance and worldly sorrow does not? 
Since worldly sorrow does not produce repentance, it does not bring the sorrow-filled heart to the only source of forgiveness and life, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. It is possible to be filled with great regret over something. That's what we learn about this reality of worldly sorrow. You can be filled with regret and filled with remorse over something that you did, but it does not result in salvation in Christ. There are different examples of this dichotomy in Scripture. And perhaps the the clearest one that we can think of is Judas and Peter. Both of them did something very similar, right? They, They both betrayed their Lord. And Judas ends up very regretful over his sin and and very sad over what he has done, but it does not issue forth into true repentance, while Peter repents and is restored and is welcomed back into fellowship. We think of people like Esau, who did something foolish and, and sold his birthright and was filled with great regret. And we read in the book of Hebrews, it says, see to it that no one is unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He was very sad over what he had done, this irresponsible act of selling his birthright, but he did not repent. In contrast to someone like Esau, someone like David, who committed a sin with Bathsheba and then compounded that sin in an almost unthinkable way by sending Uriah to the front lines of battle so that he would be killed in battle. And yet David achieves a repentance that we never see with Esau. The words of the psalm that we just sang, Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Esau and David, Judas and Peter, the difference is repentance. Worldly sorrow misses the point. See, no one enjoys the unintended consequences of sin. No one enjoys getting caught in the act or or having some sin in your life pointed out. And most everyone will try to avoid in the future the unintended consequences of sin. But the question is... Are you repentant? Are you repentant? So Paul talks about this and teaches us really the nuts and bolts of repentance. He tells us exactly what it looks like, how we are to recognize it in our own hearts, how we are to see it in others. And I think we can break it down by saying it looks like this. It starts with admitting, admitting, and then it goes to being angry about about the sin. Then it moves to being afraid. Then it moves to being afflicted. And then it moves to taking action. Admitting, being angry, being afraid, being afflicted, and taking action. So this is a very practical look into the repentance that godly sorrow produces. And and as we consider these words tonight and and take these words of wisdom from Paul, we can put flesh onto, onto the bones of what it means to be repentant. 
And going through this cycle of repentance in our own lives is what produces in us a further comfort and a further satisfaction in God and growth in gospel obedience. Paul wants us to consider all of these things. He, he starts in verse 11. He says, see. Uh, the word there is really a word that means behold or look at this. And Paul wants them to consider all of the things that they have done. And he wants us to consider all the things that they have done as well. So he begins by, uh, by saying that there was earnestness. Earnestness. That is the first thing that godly sorrow produces in us. Earnestness. This word can mean haste. Or diligence. This is an overarching category, something that encapsulates everything that you do when you repent. It needs to be done with earnestness. It ties all of the other terms together. Being earnest about something is being committed to seeing it through to the end. Finishing a a job and, and thinking about something carefully. I read a story where a college president once expressed great worry about the maturity of the students of his college because he had tasked a group of them to to decorate a Christmas tree at the beginning of December. And it was a very tall Christmas tree, about 12 feet high. And a couple hours after he had set them about this task, he came down and he saw a lot of them leaving. The Christmas tree was only decorated six feet up, only about halfway up. And the president was worried about this. He walked up to them and said, why are you doing this? Why haven't you finished decorating the tree? And all the students kind of looked at him and they said, well, we don't really know. We can't reach that high, so we just figured we'd leave. And the president said, did you ever think about asking anyone for a ladder? And the kids said, no. And just as the immaturity of those students, the inability to think critically was shown in that moment, oftentimes we are the same way with our own sin. We don't have the earnestness to see it through to the end, to finish the cycles of repentance which God calls us to time and time again. Not only is there an earnestness, but there is what we see, an eagerness to clear yourselves. Look at that in verse 11, an eagerness to clear yourselves. And this is really uh, what we mean by admitting, admitting. This is where it all starts. This eagerness to clear yourselves can sound quite confusing. Are the Corinthians trying to demonstrate that what they did was not wrong? Is that what Paul's saying? An eagerness to clear yourselves. In other words, to offer a defense that there's a misunderstanding about what they had done. What they had done really was not wrong. That they had no sin. That wouldn't make sense because Paul is saying all of this in the context of repentance. It's not an attempt to sidestep the consequences or to say that they were not involved. But rather, it is just the opposite. It is a clear demonstration that you know you have done something wrong. And that's what the Corinthians did. It starts with admitting. That's what true repentance is. Starting with admitting. Paul had levied this accusation that these people, the Corinthians, had been loyal to false prophets. They had fallen into error and it was creating all of this division in the church. In our lives, this is the moment of coming clean, of distancing your current state of thinking from your past sin, of saying, I know and I realize and I understand that what I was doing and what I did was wrong and it was sinful. And making clear that you understand that going forward, you have every intention of being different. Admit, 
That is step one. Second, we see indignation. So be angry. Be angry. We read of indignation. Of course, that's another word for anger. Questions abound. What does Paul mean here? Is he saying that their indignation is directed at the false prophets? Is he saying that their indignation is at the people who are still unrepentant? Or is he directing it back inwards to everyone, to themselves? An indignation and an anger at yourself. I think it should be stated this way. The anger that a repentant sinner feels is primarily towards the sin. Primarily towards the sin as they consider it in themselves. This is perfectly in accord with what we talked about this morning. Remember we talked about Jesus has taught us that this, this view of sin. That my sin will always be greater to me than your sin will be to me. We think of ourselves as the foremost of sinners. And so considering the sin with an anger towards sin. Realizing that it is an offense against God. And being angry But letting that anger reflect back on yourself. It was also true in the Corinthian church that this was a sin that would have been felt on the corporate level. And so there is also a feeling beyond the individual self. But it always redounds back upon ourselves. So that we say, but for the grace of God, there go I. And we see others who are caught in a sin. We must always say, but for the grace of God... There go I, but there is a righteous indignation against sin. So admit, be angry, next, be afraid, be afraid. Moving on then, the next word is alarm in our translation, alarm. But the word is actually the word for fear. And Paul is teaching us that there is to be a reverential awe or fear of God when we consider our sin and when we're moving towards repentance. We admit that we're wrong. We distance ourselves from it. We become angry that that, that the state of sin has has infiltrated our lives and, and, and made us act in such a way. And then finally, we move to this fear, a reverential awe, and, and realize that we have offended a holy God. This fear is the same instinct that Isaiah the prophet felt in chapter 6 where he is brought into the presence of the Almighty. And as soon as he realizes where he, are, where he is, what does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. It's, it's realizing your sin in light of a holy God, an infinitely holy God. God's holiness characterizes all of his ways and all of his actions, both within and without his people. God is holy. In order for sin to become bitter to us, there must be some consideration of the holiness of God. When we grow in our sense that God is holy, we grow in our reverential awe of him who can cleanse our sin. It brings us to the place where we're like Isaiah. We say, woe is me. For I have sinned against a holy God. Admit, be angry, be afraid. Next, be afflicted. Be afflicted. The word here is longing. Longing, and that's a perfect translation. Perfect translation. This is the longing to be reconciled to the holy God whom we have offended. Being reconciled and set right with the God against whom we have sinned. It is the words of the psalmist in Psalm 38, 
in thy wrath and hot displeasure, chasten not thy servant, Lord. Let thy mercy without measure help and peace to me afford with my burden of transgression, heavy laden, overborne. Humbled now I make confession, for my folly now I mourn. Lord, my God, do not forsake me. Let me know that thou art near. Under thy protection, take me as my Savior now appear. The holiness of God brings us to a point of realizing that God is the best thing about us. That there is nothing greater than Him and that our sin has separated us from Him. The natural movement then is is as we are afraid, as we are filled with reverential awe and fear, there is a longing to be set right with this God. It is the feeling of the husband who has wounded his wife with his words, leaving her feeling unprotected and vulnerable. It is the feeling of the teenager who has betrayed the trust of his loving parents. It's longing to be restored and knowing that something is not right with those we have offended. Longing to be set right, ultimately, with God. Next, concern in verse 11. Concern. And there we see it is, uh, we move to the taking action. Taking action. The word that we read here is concern, maybe not the best translation. The problem with translation of concern is that it seems to suggest a state of mind, a kind of way of thinking about something. It, It seems more cognitive than active. One commentator I read said that this word concern misses almost entirely the depth of Paul's emotion because it's really the word for zeal, zeal. It's the word for zeal, which means that it is the energy of our longing. Zeal is the fuel in our tanks. It's it's what makes us go. It propels us to action. Longing without zeal keeps you at home, wallowing in misery. But longing with zeal produces the tax collector in Luke 18, one we talked about today, who goes to the temple to pray who stands next to a Pharisee while the Pharisee hurls insults at him, and yet at that very moment beats his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is longing with zeal. Zeal gets the job done. It is a zealous heart that leaves misery to go and be reconciled to God and to neighbor. Take action. We see that action also goes forth into the community. We read of a readiness to see justice done. Readiness to see justice done. This is where clearly our action becomes expanded beyond only just ourselves. Once action is taken on our own sin, there is often action that is to be taken for the good of the community. And, and this, was, this was Paul's purpose in writing. For the teaching and and calling to repentance for the good of the community. Dealing both with false teachers and those who do not submit to Paul's words. This is the great calling of the church. That when individual sin is dealt with, sometimes corporate sin needs to be dealt with as well. To guard the purity and the doctrine of the church so that the gospel might not become powerless because of a lame and disobedient and powerless church. This is where there is responsibility for all church members to recognize that sin is dangerous. 
It's dangerous when it is not dealt with to the community and action towards restoration must be taken. This means submitting to the leadership as they follow God's word in all of these matters. The Corinthians were commended because there was a readiness to see justice done as they went through this cycle of repentance for themselves, restoring themselves to Christ and to Paul. There were others who did not repent. And so Paul commends them for having a readiness to see justice done, for the false teachers to be dealt with, and for those who did not repent to be dealt with as well. Finally, we see then that there is an answer of comfort. Paul says at the end of verse 11, that they are innocent in the matter. That's not to say that they were innocent all of the time. Rather, the innocence has come forth as a gospel proclamation of Paul. Because they have gone through this cycle of repentance, Paul can say that they are pure. The word there is the word for pure, where we read innocent. Right before pure, there is that present tense, be. Paul says, you now are pure. Paul is declaring to them that their sins have been washed away because of their repentance, tossed into the heart of the sea, never to be brought up again. God has forgiven them. And Paul declares that to them. And Paul is God's representative. So he gives the Corinthians the comfort for which they so longed. Look at how the comfort which Paul gives to them and the assurance of forgiveness redounds back to the comfort of all of the people involved. Paul takes great comfort and is encouraged. That's what happens when people repent from sin. Titus was also overjoyed. They find the fruit of perfect joy in Christ and in each other. This is gospel godly. Repentance. This is what godly grief produces. Worldly grief leaves us sorrowful over sin's unintended consequences, sad about what it has done to our lives as we try to pick up the pieces. But godly sorrow moves from admitting onto all of the other steps, being angry, being afraid, being afflicted, taking action. As we think about the catechism then, we see how the work of the Holy Spirit is active as we go through this process of repentance. It is to be lifelong. This is how we deal with our sin. As we do this throughout our lives, for ourselves and even for those close to us, we grow to hate sin more and more. This is the dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. This cycle of repentance constantly producing in us gospel obedience, love of God, love of neighbor. We're reminded All of the time, as we go through this cycle of repentance, that we are to run away from sin. And conversely, that we are to delight to do every kind of good as we rest in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We admit, we become angry, we become afraid, afflicted, we take action. We hear the answer from on high that in Christ we are pure. In Christ, we are forgiven. We hear that because of what he has done, we are forgiven from every sin as we look to him in faith. Thus, we must live by faith that this cycle of repentance is central to our life in Christ, fundamental to being a Christian, lifelong repentance. Why we go through the the cycles of the gospel each Sunday 
to confess our sins and to hear about the forgiveness that we have. By this, by godly grief, may we cling to our Savior in faith and do all things trusting in his work while we seek to glorify God through our own good works. God will turn our sorrow into joy, our godly mourning into dancing. Here tonight, here tonight, his answers of grace, even that in Christ he will forgive us of every sin. And may we treasure this godly sorrow that refines us and makes us obedient pilgrims unto the last day. Let's pray. Father, how great is your name, how great is your mercy. We cling to it now and we remind ourselves of your goodness. We thank you for the gospel. Father, produce in us godly grief as we look and we see our own sin. May it break our hearts. May we be angry and afflicted and afraid and take action. All for your sake and for your honor, for your glory. By our repentance, may you continue to refine and sanctify and mold your people. In Christ's name, amen.